right, good morning, everybody. Excited to be with you this morning. Get to come up here about four or five times a year and be able to preach and excited to be able to fill in for Jamie. And uh, I'm glad you guys are here. It's a great crowd. So uh, my name is Jason Piffle. I'm one of the pastors here at Crosspoint. Been here for about hmm, two years, something like that. And I uh, kind of do a lot of the behind the scenes type of stuff. So um, thanks for coming. Thanks for uh, not hearing that I'm preaching and do something else today. So, so but uh, we are... Uh, we're excited to be able to be in this series called The Nine Virtues, and we're cruising through the fruit of the Spirit, and uh, this is all found in the book of Galatians, is chapter 5, kind of goes like this, but the fruit of the Spirit is joy, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, which is what we're talking about today, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And uh, it's funny, I kind of say this, I think every time I, I come up to preach, and it feels this way, every time I, I kind of get a topic, I, I first enter it going, okay, I have no idea what I'm going to talk about. Like, what do you say about goodness? Like, you got one word, and you have to fill up like 30 to 40 minutes here, and say something significant that people leave and go, oh, well, that was worth my time, instead of, that was a total waste of my time. So uh, when I first started looking at this passage and kind of this concept, uh, that's kind of how I felt. And sometimes maybe when you read your Bible, you kind of maybe feel that way. You feel like, man, what does this have to do with anything? Uh, but as I dove into the scripture, as I kind of unearthed and began thinking about this and having conversations with other people and reading and listening to other sermons, this thing came together. And I feel like this is super, super, super con- uh, I don't know, convicting is probably a, definitely a big one. Um, I definitely don't want this to feel heavy-handed by any means, I, but I just want it to feel like, man, the grace of God is amazing that through his scripture we can see something that really applies, I think, to probably most any, anybody in this room, uh, whether you know Jesus or you don't. And so we're going to have a great morning really unearthing all, all of this whole uh, thing about goodness. So as we kind of look at the fruit of the Spirit, and some of you may or may not know this, but there's a couple of things in Christian world uh, that you don't do. Uh, You don't call the book of Revelation the book of Revelations. It's just kind of one of those good Christian things you got to follow. And you don't call the fruit of the Spirit the fruits of the Spirit because it means something. The fact that there are a list of fruits and it's called fruit communicates something to us. It communicates that this is a singular thing that should happen in the life of any believer, right? Consistently, I think maybe at different levels, but all these things should be happening in us and coming out of us as Christians. Sometimes I look at this list and I think to myself, well, man, I'm, I'm doing a pretty good job of being loving, um, but I'm probably the most impatient guy around. Uh, And I think we all kind of look at each one of these and think, oh, I can measure, I'm a pretty faithful, faithful guy, but I worry a lot and I just don't have any peace at all. And I would say to you that the Holy Spirit is faithful uh, for people who are Christians, that he is going to work in your life and all these things are going to move forward at some sort of pace. And so it's really, uh, I think, a great series that we're in. So today, like I said, we're going to talk about this concept of goodness and uh, if we look at our lives right now, you could probably ask this question. Am I good? I think it's a great question to ask. Am I good? And if you went out on the street today of Petrie City and you went and talked to different people, you'd probably get some different answers. I'd say you'd get a few people that would say, no, I'm a rotten human being. 
Uh, and then you would get some other people that say, yeah, people are good. We're kind of inherently good. That's who we are. Like, we're made in God's image, right? We're good. So let me throw this up on the screen. I think this is a really interesting uh, law. And it's called Pareto's, if I pronounce it right, Pareto's Law. And this is what it says. It says that roughly 80% of the effects come from 20% of the causes. Okay, so when we look at all the things that are happening in the world, I think we can deduce from this law that 20% of the world are the problem and the other 80% of us are totally fine. I think we would naturally think that. I would kind of naturally think that 20 people, 20% are causing the problems, 20% are murdering people, 20% are cheating on this or that, and the rest of the 80%, ah, we're good, right? Well, my plan today is to kind of blow up our categories when it comes to this idea of goodness, okay? So we're going to completely destroy this, which is I like doing that. I don't know why I enjoy doing that, but I like blowing up categories and things that we think that our whole entire life looked one way, and then we look at the scripture and God wrecks our perspective. And so that's what we're going to do today, because I think many of us think that we're good, or we think that maybe we do good things, or we maybe we make good choices, and we see that as fruit, okay? It's, and I think that's natural to think about that. We maybe take a trip down to the soup kitchen, and at the end of that, we feel good, don't we? We feel like we did something good. We may even take like some sort of moral stand, maybe some stand on some sort of social issue, either for or against that. And as a result of that stand, we feel good. Or maybe um, we take some sort of stand to say, well, I'm not going to sleep with my girlfriend or I'm not going to sleep with my boyfriend. And that somehow makes us right and somehow makes us good. Or we're not going to cheat on our taxes because we owe the government what that we owe. And so we're not going to make that choice. Or I'm not going to take this ream of paper and throw it in my laptop bag and take it home because I'm out of paper at home because I'm going to pay them back. Because we know we won't. And so we choose to not do that because we think we are good, and that makes us feel good. Here's the last one. Maybe you're, it's four, five o'clock, and you're sitting at the corner of 54, 74, and you are in all that traffic, and you smile, and you let somebody in in front of you, and you feel good. <laughs> or maybe you don't. But I'm here to tell you that all these things if you don't love Jesus, if you don't have a relationship with Jesus, it's all a big self-deception. It's all intended, these things, to just make ourselves feel better is one possible motive. Or to make us feel that we're okay with God. And so we do, a lot of times, good things to either be noticed or we do good things so that God would notice us, or that God would feel good about us. And that's just one big old self-deception. Think about this. We all know that we've done bad things. Should we do a raise of hand? Everybody raise your hand if you've done something bad. I think we all have. So where is the line between a thing becoming bad or good? Who chooses where the line is? Does that make sense to everybody? 
like without outside of scripture, and if we're just making decisions based upon how we feel, then how do we decide if something is good or if something is bad? It's very relative, isn't it? So let me give you an example. I've heard this one a lot, um, probably too, more than I'd really like to hear it. Um, but so we have a couple who's engaged in theory. So they have this theoretical couple who's engaged. And they decide that we love each other. We're going to get married in six months. We're both in separate places. We're renting. We're paying double money, double food, double everything. Man, this would just be so much more convenient if we would just move in together, right? And so in that moment of relativism, we create a new rule to justify the behavior that we know that isn't right. And that's what we do. So we either live one of three ways. We either live um, as someone who justifies our behavior. We make up our own rules, relativism. We try to be good and try to earn God's favor. Or we say, you know, the whole thing is just worthless. Let's just forget about it and do whatever I want to do and just live in anarchy. <laughs> that's how we function as people, right? And so two of those are really the desire to be good and the other one is just the desire to who cares really about this at all. So let me tell you this, though. The bottom line is, if you don't love Jesus, if you're not a follower of Christ, I'm going to use lots of terms, if you're not saved, if you haven't turned your life over to him, or you're not in a relationship, whatever thing connects with your brain, if that's not you, then you don't have the Holy Spirit. It's not a part of your life. If you don't have the Holy Spirit, you can't have the gifts that come from the Holy Spirit if you don't have the gifts that come from the Holy Spirit, then you can't be good. You with me? That's a very important thing to figure out and to understand. That's not how the world works. Check this out here in Romans 3. It's a great chapter. It's just full of amazing theological truths. Verse three, uh, 10, second half says this. None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks God. We've all turned aside at some point in time of our life, like pre-Jesus or potentially right now, we turned away. And together, all these things that we are doing, they're worthless. No one does good. Not even one. And I think about that, and I challenge that in my life, and I go, of course I do good. I do good all the time. Like, my life isn't a total wreck. There's things that are good. And I think that's a good question to ask. But the more I think about it, if I pull Jesus out of the scenario and I think about why would I make good choices, it all goes to my motive. Most of the time for me when I'm operating in a sinful way, I'm functioning to make good choices to avoid consequences for myself so I don't get myself in trouble. So it's self-serving. Or I make choices so other people will notice how great I am. So why'd you go serve? Man, it was great. It was a blessing. It was an amazing day. And they're like, you're awesome, Jason. Man, I, that's great. Good job. And I go, approval. I'm so nice. I feel so good about my life. And so we take good things. Those are not bad things. But we manipulate them because we're simple people. And we twist them around, and we make something that was normally good, we make it very bad. You see, apart from God, we can do nothing. And it's why 
We need him so desperately. We need to be rescued, right? I think deep down in our hearts, like the first 17 years of my life, I grew up, I grew up Catholic. So the first 17 years of my life, my life was like being on a hamster wheel. Running, running, running. I got to do something good. I got to help somebody because that's the only way that God is going to love me. That's the only way that God is going to approve of me is I have to do more good things than bad things. Again, I'm making up my own theology. I'm making up my own rules based upon what I think, not based upon what the Bible says. And so that was my first 17 years of my life was that. And that's how I was trying to be approved by God by being good. God says it's hopeless. We should give up on that. The cool thing about being a follower of Jesus is this, okay? So we've established that we're all hopefully messed up and we do things for the wrong reasons, definitely. And God says that we're not good on our own. We're not. But in this verse here in Philippians, here's what it says. Indeed, this is Paul talking, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. So he's saying, you know what? Nothing compares to Jesus. Like, he is my everything. Everything else is down here. Nothing comes close. We talked about this in the end of our uh, series that we did on the story. We got to the end, and Jamie asked the question. He says, when we get to heaven, what is going to be our motive? Do you want heaven, or do you want Jesus? Because heaven without Jesus is not heaven. You understand that, right? And so that's what Paul is talking about. He's like, I want him. Nothing else mattered. For his sake, I've suffered loss of all things. And I count them all as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ and be found in him. That's powerful. Do you feel that way? I have to confess, there's days I don't feel like that. There's days that I do, and there's days that I don't. Here it is, right here. Not having righteousness of my own that comes from the law. So not having this like list of rules and list of things that I have to do to try to make myself self-righteous. I'm going to throw that away. But that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. This is called imputed righteousness. And so what, is, what happens at the moment of faith, what happens at the moment of salvation where you turn your life over to Jesus is that the righteousness of Jesus is placed upon you. And it makes you good. It makes you good. So how do we get goodness? We get Jesus. And so this is a very, very important verse because this idea of imputed righteousness changes the landscape of why we do things. And it changes our heart. We need him. And this goodness that we get from him is something that we could never, ever attain on our own. So you'd think that would be the end of the story, right? So if you're not a Christian today, you're probably sitting back and going, okay, I'm tracking with you. I understand what you're talking about. But you don't know the Christians that I know. You don't see the life, okay, and 
the words not matching up. I see a discrepancy. I see somebody who says that they love Jesus, but their life doesn't look any different than anybody else. That's what I see. I see just a bunch of hypocrites. That's why we're talking about Ephesians 5. Because this passage right here addresses that issue. This inconsistency that happens, unfortunately, to the Christian life where the inside is righteous. The inside, this imputed righteousness of Jesus is upon you, but the outside has very little indication that that's the, that that's the case. So let's look it up. It's uh, Ephesians 5. It's up here on the screen. We're going to just kind of go a few kind of verse by verse through this section because I think it's interesting. So it starts at the beginning. It's a little bit of overlap from what Jamie talked about last week. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. So he's addressing Christians. Don't get, this passage would mean something completely different if he was addressing people who didn't know Jesus. But he's addressing Christians, okay? And he says, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice of God. So it kind of ties back to that Philippians verse. Where he says, remember, this is what Jesus did for you. He died for you because he loves you, and then he imputed his righteousness upon you. Okay, That's your identity. It's who you are. It's who you are on the inside. And then he continues on, and here it goes. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetedness must not even be named among you as his proper among the saints. So he sets something, he kind of identifies something to the people and he says, okay, you say that you're a Christian, you say that you love Jesus, but you are sleeping with someone other than your spouse. You're going up to the temple and you're sleeping with a prostitute or you're looking at things you shouldn't be looking at or in our context, it could be that, it could be pornography. It could be a lot of things. And so he's identifying for Christians. He's saying, look at the inconsistency. This is what your heart is, and this is who, how you are functioning. Then he continues on. He says this. He says, let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place. But instead, let there be thanksgiving. Interestingly, I've been around a lot of people, and I tell you what, this gets, sucks me in, you know. I can be around other pastors who will kind of just flippantly start cursing or saying things that I'm, at first I kind of go, mm, and then I'm like, do I have the freedom to do that? And then I read that verse and go, no, not, why do I want to do that? That doesn't make any sense to me. And I think that happens. It happens with people around us. Um, I had a guy who's called me two or three times trying to sell me stuff on the phone. I don't know why I talked to him, but I talked to him. And uh, he goes, every time he's like, hey, I got something to sell you in a joke. And the first time I was like, all right, what is it? So he tells me, and he tells me a dirty joke. And I'm like, that kind of soured my day. Like, I didn't really need to hear that. You're trying to sell me something? Like, that's your, that's your strategy? And then he's called me two other times, and each time I'm like, I'll listen to your product, but I don't really care for your joke. Uh, okay. And then he tells me about his product. 
I think this is very common and the thing that happens a lot. I think for some of us, it might be this. It might be the latest rated R comedy comes out. And somehow we find some sort of humor in jokes about masturbation or gay sex or weird sexual situations, and we put it on the big screen and we think it's funny. And it's not. And I think that's what Paul's addressing. He's saying, there's some things here that don't match up. Your heart is this, but you're functioning this way. It really lacks integrity. That was a hard one, wasn't it? Then he goes on in verse 5. He says, for you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or is covetous, covetous, that is, an adulterer has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. This is the gut check verse of the passage. And I think why it's the gut check is because it's meant for us to analyze our lives and look at our lives and ask this question. Have things around us become so important that we have forgotten that Jesus is the most important? Have we turned our back on our Savior, or maybe we never turned to him in the first place, and that's why these things are so, so important in our lives? And so we have to ask the question, because those things have become the things that we worship. If we're okay with cheating on our spouse, you kind of go, I would rather have that than Jesus. There's a problem. It should tell you and me something about our hearts. Let's continue on. Verse 6 says, let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partners with them. It's a hard one. Let no one deceive you with empty words. We make choices about what sort of relationships we have in life, don't we? We have choices of who, what sort of people will be our primary relationships, and what sort of people will be our secondary relationships. And any time someone becomes a primary relationship or a primary friend of ours, and they are leading us away from Jesus, rather toward him, that's a problem. I see it happen all the time. Don't get me wrong. If you're a Christian, you should hang out with non-Christians. I would never want you to think that I'm advocating for the bubble within our bubble of Petrie City. Our Christian bubble where we all just kind of hug each other and isolate ourselves from the people around us. But what I am advocating for is who are your primary relationships and are they driving you to Jesus? So, maybe you're dating somebody. Maybe you're engaged to somebody and that person doesn't want anything to do with Jesus whatsoever. That's probably a problem. <laughs> or you get a call on Friday morning. We're going to go party in Friday. We're going to go up here and we're going to drink. And every time you do that, you go out and you get just totally drunk and plastered. Probably not a good choice and probably not a good group of people to hang with on your Friday nights. Or it might be something subtle like this. The same people keep asking you on Saturday, hey, let's go to the lake on Sunday morning. 
or whenever your small group is, and you engage and you jump on that on a consistent basis, and it pulls you away from what you need to be, you think you need to be doing. And don't hear me wrong. I'm not trying to set up a bunch of rules and say, well, you should do this and don't do this, because I think these things come through conviction. Everybody's in a different place, but I think the Holy Spirit convicts our hearts and shows us some things where we're just misaligned, and that's where he makes some adjustments. And so that's where any of these things, you already talk to God, like, what is it? What's going on in my life? So don't pair up with people who are going to drag you away from Jesus. I can say that. I do think that's important, and I think that's something that happens all the time. But instead, verse 8, here it is. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are of the light. You are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. I remember the first time I went to South Dakota. I grew up in Nebraska. First time I ever went to South Dakota and went to a cave. Anybody been in a cave before? It's like the darkest place ever. And I remember being in a cave on a boat, which is really weird, floating inside of a cave. And we got to the middle of this little lake, and they just shut all the lights out. And I, it was the freakiest thing ever because we're floating. You know you're on water, and you can't see a single thing. And you're like this. I cannot see my hand. I cannot see my hand. And then at the end of the demonstration, they flip on like a lighter or a little candle or light. And it lights up this entire cave. This little bitty light lights this entire cave. And I'm like, I could escape this thing with this little light. This is amazing. That is what the Christian life is after salvation. So for people who don't know Jesus, and that was me the first 17 years of my life, I was walking around in this cave, bumping into stuff, and I have no idea what life is about. Think about if you grew up your entire life that way, walking around in this darkness, you have no idea, and you don't even know what you're missing, right? Because you just think this is the way life is supposed to be. It's supposed to be like, this is the way everybody lives. I'm just walking around. And then somebody flicks a light in front of you, and you see the landscape for the way it really is. And that light is Jesus. And that's what happens. And he flickers this light on and you realize that you've been living a life that is completely hopeless and dead. And you're lost. And then you have a choice to make. Do I want him in my life all the time or not at all? So it says walk as the children of light. He's saying embrace that. Take steps forward and pursue Jesus and conform, have him conform your, conform your life to goodness. Verse 9. For the, light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good, is right, good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord and take no part into the unfruitful works of, of darkness. So the idea is that this righteousness has come upon us. We don't have to jump into these dark things, right? But there's obviously some sort of conflict that's going on. Tim Keller puts it this way. He says the Greek word is actually translated, goodness is actually translated as integrity. This idea that we should be the same person in every situation that, rather than being a phony or a hypocrite. You've heard that word before, right, about Christians? Happens all the time. So as a child of God, we have to understand that 
Our identity is that we are a child. Our identity is we walk as children in the light. Our identity is that this righteousness has been placed upon us. And so therefore we respond to that with the help of the Holy Spirit and we make different choices. That is called Christian growth. That happens because the fruit of the Spirit is moving in you and changing you. He goes on to say this. He said, so, instead of pursuing darkness, he says this, but instead expose them. Now, we may look at that line and a lot of people distort this verse, right? A lot of people become the pious finger pointer, okay? I experienced this a few years back when I was in Asheville. I was at a big festival and I was hanging out. Asheville is very... uh, hippie-ish. It's probably a good way to put it, very earthy kind of place to go. And so we're kind of in this down, down kind of square in the middle of the city, and there are people with big old signs with just hate plastered all over them from churches. That's how they take that verse. I'm awesome. I've got it all figured out. And you all are horrible, and so let me be the light in your face with this terrible, hateful sign because it's going to convict you and change you. Doesn't work that way. He goes on to say, For it's shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret, but when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. So what he's not, he's, saying, he's not saying that you become the light by being the finger pointer. He's saying you become the light when this, in, this goodness that's in you already comes out of you. And that's how it exposes the darkness. It naturally moves from the inside to the outside. Your life looks different. If you're married, your marriage looks different. It should. Right? Or if your spouse is leaving you, your life should look different. (laughs) That's hard. Because we respond differently because the righteousness that is within us. Too often, Christians just look like everybody else around them. That's why, quite a few years back, I started using a different phrase. I was like, ah, man, we're in the South and everybody's a Christian. I started using the word Christ follower. For some reason, for me, it clicked in my brain. It seemed different. It seemed like it made sense. Just like Jesus went by the Sea of Galilee and he called his apostles. And they became followers who just followed him around everywhere. It made sense to me. I think that's what he's calling us to be. He's saying there needs to be a consistency from the inside to the outside. Here's why. Because that change is attractive. People are tired of just doing the right things because it's the right thing to do. You understand? They're tired of that. They're tired of people telling them that. That's why people give up and they just go into anarchy and they just do whatever they want to do. Because they're just tired. It's like, what's, what's the point? Why should I try? Because the motive is not anything noble or pure 
or it's not going to work. And I think deep inside, there's something innately about us that we understand that it isn't going to work. And so we have something to be able to present to the people around us. When we create, or not create, when we present um, a life that is consistent because we are trusting in Jesus and we're allowing him to change us, I think that's attractive. It was attractive for me when I hung out with my youth pastor when I was 14 years old, and I would watch him and how his life looked different than pretty much anybody else that was around me. That impacted my life. And I think as Christians, we should want other people to encounter Jesus. Like, we should desire that because we value that. And so we surrender and we let him do his thing. This passage ends up here. Sorry, one too many. He says, therefore, it says, awake, O sleeper, arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. I think what Paul's addressing, he's saying, you know, we have just a bunch of sleepy Christians around. It's time to wake up. I think the world in which we live in, I think we can all agree that the stakes are very high. I think the more bad things that happen, we have to look at those and go, the stakes are too high to be apathetic about this whole thing. You know? I think that's what I tell myself. I'm like, oh. like if there isn't anything that's bringing pressure upon believers, I mean, we don't have any hope. <laughs> like, like if we don't see the things that are happening and realize that we need Jesus, like what else we got? John 15, I think this is one of the greatest passages in Scripture, in my opinion, says this. It says, I am the vine, you are the branches. Let me just point out, it doesn't say, you are the vine, I am the branches. Whoever abides in me, so whoever stays connected to me and I stay connected to him, it is he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. It just addresses the same thing. He wants fruit in our lives, right? But we have to stay connected to the vine. He's not saying, hey, if you want to bear fruit, you just got to try harder. Come on, get with it. Try harder. What is wrong with you? He's saying, stay connected to me. I am the life giver. The nutrients that you need to produce fruit come from me. They come through the vine and into you. And so if you disconnect yourself from me, you can't expect anything but rotten fruit. So what's the solution? Let me just wrap this up here. Here it is. Yearn, discern, repent, respond. I think these are good words. Probably maybe better ones. Who knows? But when I think about this, it connects with my brain. Hopefully it connects with you. Yearn for Jesus. Someone even said, I was listening to a sermon this last week. Someone put it this way. Said, lust for Jesus. Seems really strong, right? Like, our desire should be so strong for him. I think lust kind of puts it, kind of kicks it up a notch, right? So yearn. Yearn for him. Want him. Remember the cross. Remember his love. Remember what he did for you. Remember that his righteousness is placed upon you. 
yearn for him. Discern. As a result of yearning for Jesus, like coming into a relationship with him and living that way, like then the Holy Spirit is a part of our life, and he's going to start to work out fruit in our life. It's just going to happen. I think when we get it wrong and we just quit yearning for Jesus, then it's like, how can we expect this, the Spirit to work? Gets it backwards, doesn't it? So we yearn, and then we discern. The Holy Spirit convicts us of things that are wrong in our life. That's why I'm saying, don't take the things that I'm saying and apply them. Like, well, Jason says you shouldn't do this and this and this. Hmm. We discern what the Holy Spirit says in our lives. And we go, I'm convicted about this. Maybe it is something I said. But I'm convicted. And I know that God wants me to eradicate that darkness in my life. And so it moves me to repentance. And I repent. I say, Jesus, I am sorry. I'm sorry I am functioning this way. I'm sorry that I'm functioning the way I did before I was a Christian. I'm sorry that I'm being self-righteous. I'm sorry that I'm like pursuing these things that just bring death and suffering and darkness to around me. I'm sorry that I'm an ineffective witness because of the choices that I have made in life. And I repent. And then I respond. And I sit back and I say, do what you want. How do you want me to respond to you? So it starts with the work of Jesus in our lives. It doesn't start with trying harder. You understand? I mean, there's obviously in even this passage, there's quite a few commands of things that Jesus wants us to do, but we do them because we love him. Tim Keller put it this way. He says, you please the law giver because you have to. You please Jesus because you want to. See the difference? When it's all about the law and it's all about self-righteousness or it's all about trying to make myself approved or to feel good about myself, then the motive is all about, I have to do this. What a bummer. Nobody wants to do that. Nobody wants to take out the garbage. You know what I mean? Like, you just have to do it. And so you do it grudgingly every single time. But if you want to serve your spouse by doing that, you do it because you want to. It's a different motive. And the same thing holds true for this. Why do we choose righteous and pure things? It's because we want to. It's because we're yearning for Jesus and we love him. And we're so thankful for what he has done. We can't help but to respond in a like manner, in a way that produces integrity from the inside to the out. We can't help it. And that's the kind of life we really should live. Well, we're going to get ready to take communion. And I think this is a good time to think about where we're at. Um, Some of you in this room may be like, I don't have any idea who Jesus is at all. Like, and so during this time, I would challenge you to think about what we talked about at the beginning. Are you in this rat race, this kind of hamster wheel of life that you can't get off of when you're just trying to be good and you're hoping that it's going to work out all right. What a gamble. Maybe that's you. Maybe you're a Christian who's going, man, my outside does not match my inside at all. Like, they are completely inconsistent. I know I love Jesus, or at least I thought I did, but I have nothing to show for it on the outside because 
I've just been doing things my own way. Or you may be what God wants you to be. And you may be looking at your life and saying, God, please protect me from falling into these traps. God, help me to not make choices that bring darkness to my surroundings. Maybe that's you. I think there's probably a lot of people that are like that. And you pray like me and be like, God, I know I'm susceptible to sin just like anybody else. Protect me. Protect me from that. I don't want to dishonor you and communicate on the outside that I really don't love you when I do. So let's take a couple minutes if James, if you could come up and I just encourage you to pray. Maybe just take a couple seconds here, a minute or two, and pray and think, or just kind of bow your head and think about all the things we talked about this morning. Think about what does it look like for your life to start with yearning, to move into really discerning what's happening, then to move to repentance and responding to Jesus. Like, what does that look like for you, for every single person in this room? Thanks for listening. If you have any questions about this message, visit us at crosspointptc.com. There you can contact us, find further resources and directions to our gatherings. That's C-R-O-S-S-P-O-I-N-T-E. PTC.com.